Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello, welcome along. You might have had quite a slow week and your brain has switched off. So we're turning that around, flicking it on. It's time for a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. This is the show where we explore the universe. We search out all those science secrets that are lurking around the solar system, into the galaxy, and then further, many millions of light years away we are headed this week. We'll hear something fun. Well, something fungi. Fun guy, fungi. Jassy Dracolich is on. She's a fungi expert talking all about marvellous mushrooms. Every time a leaf falls from a tree, what happens to it? It wouldn't go anywhere if it wasn't for things like fungi. So they break down that leaf and make it into a big pile of mush and then they can reabsorb, they can suck up some of those things that have been released from the leaf and then other things like slugs and snails can come and eat on the leftovers. So by breaking down something that has now died, all of those products to go back into something else that is alive. So they kind of join up the dead material to feed it back into the living material. And we'll take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, this week learning about how robots have been used in space. All right, that's the end of the lesson for today, but don't forget your homework. A history of robots on Mars. ExoMars rover certainly isn't the first and won't be the last. And I've got your questions to answer this week. They are on electric cars and the blood moon. It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start things off with your science in the news. Four people are going to find out what it's like on Mars. But down here on planet Earth, they'll live on a simulation of the planet Mars to help NASA prepare for human exploration there, hopefully soon. They'll carry out different activities like spacewalks and robotic operations. And it's not all good and rosy. They'll also face food shortages, isolation, equipment failures to mimic expected life on the red planet. They're challenging themselves to find out what's happening. It's a brilliant idea that we aren't just sending humans onto Mars and saying, all right, This is yours. Go for it. See how you get on. We're actually testing them here. Brilliant work. Also, the most detailed map of dark matter ever has been made. Now, dark matter makes up a lot of the mass of the universe, a lot of the stuff inside it. But it's hard to find and it can't really be understood. We know it exists, but we don't really know what it does. But a telescope in Chile has found some of it across 14 billion years of time. It's dark, so we can't directly see it, but we know it's there because of how it has affected other light rays nearby. I love stories like this where scientists all the time are coming up with ingenious ways to try and prove ideas that we've had, but still asking questions. How does it work? Why is it there? What does it do? And for almost the first time, a 3D printed hand has been made that can hold things. It's been created by a team at the University of Cambridge. It has sensors, loads of them, that allows it to know what it's touched. It has sensors, loads of them, that allows it to know what it's touching. And over thousands of tests have been carried out on it. It held a peach, a computer mouse and a bubble wrap. And the brilliant part is it, because of these sensors, it knows how strongly to hold things depending on what they are. Maybe it needs a gentler touch. 
brilliant that we're making uh, robotics and AI so simply with 3D printers. But is it just me? A little bit of me does worry that maybe we're getting too close to that robot revolution. Let's spin the big wheel of the A to Z of engineering then. From acoustics to zoos, for the last few weeks, we've been learning about the amazing world of engineering, how things are made, why they're there, and who built them too. To do this, we need to go to Engineer Academy and meet up with our good mate, the engineering expert, Engers, and he starts us off to find out what letter we're looking at this week by spinning that wheel. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's E. And E is for environmental. Thanks, Engers. Now, we all know that the environment is important. But what do we mean when we talk about environmental engineering? From the air we breathe to the ground under our feet, we need a safe and clean environment to live and to stay healthy. It's important to protect nature, not just to ensure that the food we eat and the water we drink is not contaminated, but also protect habitats and clean up any contamination, whether to our oceans, towns or farmland. And that's where environmental engineering comes in. Let's dig into the detail. Over to you, Engers. In a nutshell, environmental engineers use the principles of engineering, soil science, biology and chemistry to develop solutions to environmental problems. They work to improve recycling, waste disposal, public health and water and air pollution control. They also address global issues such as unsafe drinking water and environmental sustainability. As you can imagine, they're pretty busy. One of the most interesting things about environmental engineering is the sky is literally the limit. There's a tremendous variety of different projects from ones on a global scale, like coming up with ways to create clean water supplies for an entire country, to much smaller ones, like reducing polluting emissions from a single factory. Part of environmental engineering is making checks on what already exists. Pretty much everywhere in the world there are rules and laws about the level of pollution and emissions that can be generated and targets to reduce these. Environmental engineers take measurements and analyse data to perform checks. Let's take a look at some real-life examples. First up is recycling. We know there are plastic pollutants in our oceans. Environmental experts are creating roadmaps which identify where different types of plastics come from. By identifying those types which are on the increase, targeted measures can be put in place to reduce their use and increase ways they can be recycled. It's forecast that if we don't do anything, annual flows of plastic into the oceans could triple by 2040. But if we invest in technologies to reduce and recycle the worst offenders, there could actually be an 80% reduction. Another area of environmental engineering is waste disposal. Not that kind of waste. Although managing sewage is definitely something environmental engineers work on, waste management can be developing ways to safely get rid of yucky things. And that's not just things like dangerous and hazardous chemicals, but something almost every industry needs to think about. And that's heat. You might not think of heat as a waste product. After all, you can't throw it in the bin. But heat contributes to global warming. If that heat could be captured and reused... 
it would help reduce the amount of energy used and lost. Waste heat from London Underground is already used to provide heating and hot water to more than 1,350 homes, a school and two leisure centres in North London. Another key area is public health. Basically, it's all about keeping us healthy, preventing disease and prolonging life. Clean water is at the heart of this global issue. Nearly one billion people don't have clean water close to home, and diarrhoea caused by dirty water and poor toilets kills a child every two minutes. In 2016, a young engineer called Adrian Livano visited Kenya to help improve access to clean water. He created a coconut-based carbon and earth-based ceramic container that purifies water. It sits perfectly on the back of a bike or motorcycle, which many people use, storing 12 litres of water and filtering a litre an hour. Thanks, Engers. And that's our take on the letter E. It's been exciting. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out electronic, electrical or energy engineering? Engineer Academy. All right, let's get to your questions then. I love this part of my favourite part of the week of the podcast, where you turn me into a science detective. If you've heard something recently and you're not sure if that can possibly be true, well, let me know. Send the question over and I will do all of that digging and I will find out the answer for you. One of the ways you can get in touch is by leaving a voice note for me over at funkidslive.com. Who's done that this week? Are electric cars good for the planet? Ziva, thank you for that question. Are electric cars good for the planet? Well, there are a few things that do make them good for the planet. They don't pump out any bad gases when they drive. There are no harmful emissions, stuff that floats into the air and impacts the climate crisis. Uh, They're not as polluting, and that's really good. But some studies do suggest that making the batteries that we need to power electric cars, which need to be bigger than normal cars because they're the only ones that are moving it, that making those batteries takes a lot of energy, and that is quite harmful for the planet. Also, think about this. If the energy that powers the batteries comes from fossil fuels, well, that's not good, is it? We don't need fossil fuels like that. If we're going to think green, we need to think of different ways to make energy. So those fossil fuels that drive the electric cars, they're still not good that good for the planet. But experts say the renewables are the way to go. And we're moving towards that. So perhaps solar or wind power needs to help move the cars and that will make them much greener, Zyva. So electric cars can be better than many other cars that uh, pump out pollutants, but they're still not as brilliant as we need them to be. Another way that you can get a question answered is by leaving it as a review uh, over on Apple Podcasts if you find the Fun Kids Science Weekly there. That's what Florence has done there in Granada. Florence wants to know, what makes a blood moon? Have you ever seen a blood moon? There was one in the sky above the UK not too long ago. It's a massive full moon that fills up the air, but it looks a pinkish red. But what makes it that colour? Well, it happens during a form of an eclipse when the Earth is completely blocking the sun from the moon. So the moon's not really getting any direct sunlight. It's in our shadow. But still, a little bit of light from our sunrises and sunsets around the very edge of the Earth's surface do fall on the moon. So picture that. The light is curving around the Earth to hit the moon. 
Now, because it's curving, it's bending around our atmosphere, that light gets stretched. It sends it scattering in all directions. This is called refraction. You can test it out. You know when you put your finger in water? Looks like it's coming from a different angle, doesn't it? It kind of bends in the water. It's because of the way the light is moving. It's bending through it. So that's what's happening. The light is bent around the Earth. It comes in a curved direction, which refracts it. It scatters the sunlight. And the shorter light lengths get directed towards the moon. And that's where the red part of the light waves are. That's where the red colour comes from. So that light, the red light, hits the moon, bounces back to Earth so we can see it. And that's why it looks red. It's all to do with refraction. Florence, thank you so much for the question. If you've got one that what you want answered next week on the show, I'd love to hear you ask it. You can be a star of the podcast. Make sure you leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or you can record it at funkidslive.com. Now, for this week's Dangerous Dan, we're carrying on our look at some of the strangest defence mechanisms in the animal kingdom. We are headed to Central Africa to take a look at the hairy frog. Now, this frog grows around 10 centimetres long. They're usually a green-brown colour with some black spots along them. They get their name from the hair that covers the sides of males when they're trying to attract a mate. They grow quite a fancy hairdo. They live on the ground, but they will go back to water to lay eggs in streams. They tend to eat spiders, beetles, slugs or grasshoppers. Now, they're known as the hairy frog, but they also go by the name the wolverine frog or even the horror frog. The horror frog, it suggests that it can be up to no good. It's because of what they do when they're threatened by a predator. Get a load of this. They can break their own bones. When they're in a spot of trouble, they break the bones around their feet and they push them through the skin so those broken bones become a spiky claw. A claw that can push out or move in, goes out or attract, a bit like cats. But they aren't claws, they're bits of their own bones that they break on purpose to get away from something aggressive, to fight, to battle, to defend itself. What a way to do that, to cause yourself harm. And I assume pain, it can't be nice breaking your own bones, but they do that to make their own claws and to get away. And that is why the hairy frog, the horror frog, goes straight onto our dangerous stand list. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're talking plants, a very special type of plant. We're talking fungi with Dr. Jassy Draculich, who is a plant pathologist at the Royal Horticultural Society. What a title, Jassy. Thank you for being there. Hello, Dan. Yes, I am a plant pathologist, but also a bit of a mycologist on the side. Uh, What's the difference between the two? So pathology is all about disease and harm. And a plant pathologist therefore works on things that harm plants and cause disease in plants, of which fungi can be some of those things, as well as bacteria and so on. But a mycologist specialises just in fungi. So when we think of fungi, I imagine what me and and many people listening, they'll just 
think of mushrooms straight away that's what it is a fungi is a mushroom what actually is it a mushroom is a type of fungi what do we class fungis as what makes them so fungi well it's a brilliant question because the the fungus itself is the whole organism so it has a mushroom or many of them will make mushrooms but that mushroom is a small part of that and we actually another word for a mushroom is the fruiting body because it's comparable to an apple or a banana you know the fruit that a tree or a plant produces um, and it it does that it makes that mushroom in order to spread itself far and wide by releasing spores it's to reproduce just like the seeds inside an apple they can plant that in the ground and make a new tree but they are temporary they only pop up every so often, but the rest of the body of that fungus is growing as a network of threads, like a big mesh of tiny microscopic threads, cells that are really long and all linked together. And they're growing either through the soil or through some wood or whatever it is it's feeding on. It'll grow into it, around it, and then start oozing enzymes to digest it and reabsorbing. So it's a big mesh of threads doing lots of kind of chemical reactions to do its digestion. And then every so often it'll make one of these magnificent structures like a mushroom or a bracket fungus. What benefit do us humans get from them? So when we're talking about seeds with trees, they help us breathe. They help us stay alive. Apart from actually eating uh, a mushroom when the fungi decides to burst with a flower head. Do we get any benefit from them at all? Fungi are really, really helpful. So if you think every time a leaf falls from a tree, what happens to it? It wouldn't go anywhere if it wasn't for things like fungi, because what they do is decompose. So that's breaking stuff down. So they break down that leaf and they break it down with those cells and make it into a big pile of mush. And then they can reabsorb, they can suck up some of those things that have been released from the leaf. And then other things like slugs and snails and uh, wood lice and other, other insects can come and eat on the leftovers. So by breaking down something that has now died and releasing everything that was inside of it, that enables all of those, those products to go back into something else that is alive. So they kind of join up the dead material to feed it back into the living material. How much do we know about the history of the fungi? We know so much about some plants, the earliest plants perhaps that were ever here on planet Earth. How much do we know about where fungi came from and how long they've been around? Well, if it wasn't for fungi, plants would have never made it onto dry land. Plants, cells that can do, you know, trapping sunlight like plants do, they existed in the water, in the seas, but they weren't able to make it onto dry land. They didn't have any roots and fungi, they worked like plant roots to start off with. And so they've been around for as long and longer than plants, but we don't know anywhere near as much about them because they're much harder to to study. They're much harder to find. They're harder to identify. um, And many of them don't ever make mushrooms. So we never see them unless we use DNA tools, molecular methods to find out which species are around. We've spoken about mushrooms and that's because when I think of fungi, I, I, I think of a mushroom because that's what I know what, how it looks. When it's not a mushroom, when it is deep underground, what, what do fungi look like? I think the best way to imagine it is a microscopic... Have you ever taken all the hair out of a hairbrush and then you've got like a big kind of nest of thread-like cells all kind of like linked together? Well, it's kind of like that, but on a microscopic scale. So really, really fine cells instead of thick hairs. And 
it can grow as these little hair-like cells, yeah, in between the cells of woody material, in between the little pores in in a in a patch of soil. They can grow inside of leaves. They can they're, so it's just these tiny little filaments, threads that all joins together like a big network, and they can send food and signals to and fro along these really tiny, thin, thin cells. You said we don't know too much about them. How good are scientists, experts like you, how good are you at spotting fungi? If you're walking through a wood, are you able to kind of look at a tree, maybe look inside the bark and and find something there? In terms of just spotting, yeah, these fruit bodies, the mushrooms and the brackets and the things that you can spot with your with just your eyes and you don't need a microscope, I think that actually the best people at finding mushrooms and the like are actually children. Sharper eyes, nearer to the ground, more curiosity. Whenever I go out and we've got children with us, they are finding more fungi than the adults. So I'd say the kids out there, they're really expert fungal spotters. But then where it comes to some of us adults is helping to identify which fungi have been found. Um, And this does take a long time to learn. Um, If anyone's try to learn about wildflowers or about birds. Um, I'd say it's it's just as fun, but it can be even trickier because you can't always tell which mushroom you have just from having the mushroom in your hands. Sometimes you need to look at the tiny details under a microscope to be able to work out one species from another if they're very closely related. And what kind of signs point towards it being one species or another? What are the clues that give away changes in fungi? Well, in terms of looking at the mushrooms and identifying a mushroom, some of the biggest features you can see are the really exciting ones. So what colour is it? What shape is it? And when you think about shape, that could be all sorts of different features. So from the shape of the cap, so the chestnut mushrooms and the butter mushrooms you have uh, in the supermarket, that's a very rounded cap, isn't it? But some mushrooms will really open right up so they're flat like a dinner plate. And sometimes they will open up and turn inside out, like when an umbrella gets blown open and upside down in the wind. Some of them, however, you might need to look at the actual stalk that holds it above the ground. That could be really skinny and hollow, or it could be really chunky and meaty. Um, Also, along the outside of that, you can have shapes and patterns and textures in all sorts of different ways, be that from like kind of fishnet kind of patterns, like a little, like a little uh, checkerboard all over the stem. You could have scales and fluff on the top uh, that makes it look almost furry or hairy. And you can get webbing as well attached between where that cap is and where that stem is. Sometimes there'll be a ring attached to the stem. And sometimes you'll have things that look like bright white spots, like on probably the most recognisable mushroom out there, the fly agaric. When we speak about creatures under the ocean, Jassy, you often hear a figure said that it's like, we don't know uh, what exists in 95% of our oceans. It's always something ridiculous like that. How how much is that true of fungi? what, What do we know about them? How much of it is undiscovered still? It's actually really similar. So I think we have names for something like maybe 200,000 fungi, but it's estimated there could be as many as about 4 million fungi. So maybe what is that, like half a percent? Um, can't do quick maths, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a very similar situation. Um, but we don't have an ocean in the way. It's just that these, uh, yeah, we have, we have soils in the way and we only recently had the tools to look at the DNA of these things to try and just take a handful of soil and then look at the DNA and see how many different species we have in there. So uh, a fungi that we might eat 
on our place on our breakfast, maybe a mushroom with some eggs. It, it's a, that is a similar thing to maybe fungus that we get in our toes or under our nails when we've got an infection. Is that right? They're all fungi, but they are quite different. So the fungi that grow in your like in humans, um, on, on the skin and on the nails, they would never make mushrooms. So when we look at the tree of life, the, the mushroom making fungi are a whole different branch to those kind of yeasty and, uh, and moldy fungi that never make a mushroom. So they've separated quite early on when, when fungi were very long ago before they'd really evolved into these complicated ones that we have in the modern age. Um, but they are still fungi, so their cells are very similar. So they have the same kind of wall around their cells that keeps them strong, even in, in dry and in moist conditions. And they still eat their food in the same way. So they don't trap sunlight like plants. They do eat food like we do using enzymes that break down things so they can absorb extra nutrients to get what they need from their environment. How do they get the enzymes in? Is, is it just kind of all across what we might know as their skin and it just when it comes into contact with something, it breaks it down? How does it absorb it if it doesn't necessarily have a mouth? It's all through their wall and their, their skin, as if you like. So the outside of those cells, that's what they they. They squirt their enzymes out into the environment. Then the enzymes, they go chopping stuff up, be that starches into sugars and proteins into amino acids. They're chopping up lots of complicated molecules outside in the environment. And then when they're broken down into little bits, they reabsorb that. So they suck it back into those cells. And it's not from the tip. It's not from one end or the other. They can do that all around those thread-like cells. It's a very interesting kind of a body because unlike us, where we have a pattern and we've got two eyes and a, a head and you know, feet at the other end, a fungus, wherever the, the leading edge is, that could start from one side or another. If it has an indication, if it thinks, oh, there's food over there, I'll grow out in the left-hand direction. But then later on, that food might run out and it might detect food on the other side. So it starts growing out on the right-hand side instead. So it's got this completely adaptable shape to it, um, very different kind of a body that we can, you know, really wrap our heads around compared to ours. How does it detect food somewhere if it's not got eyes? It's all through chemicals. It's these things that it sends out, these signals, these enzymes. It sends things out and if it picks up that these particles, these things that it really wants, these tasty things are out there, then it gets positive feedback. It's like it recognises the things it wants to eat and it will then start growing towards the tasty food. But these are questions that in the future we do need to understand a lot more about. So we have like an idea, but really understanding the precise process we need to do a lot more work on. Well, that's what I was thinking. Uh, we, we, we seem so fascinated with finding out if there are alien species on other planets when really we've got this incredible thing all around us that we don't really understand. And I feel like, look, we've been going for just over 10 minutes and... I still don't really like, I, I barely understand. Like I've, I've got, a, I've got a slight grasp of things, but I feel like I could chat to you for days on end and only just touch the surface of fungi. It's been a real joy. Dr. Jassy Draculich uh, from the Royal Horticultural Society. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Before we go this week, let's take a quick trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, for the last few weeks. We've been getting lessons from Professor Pulsar, catching up with our good mate Sam up there, learning all about the red planet Mars. And this week, it's all about the robots that have been used in space travel. It turns out there have been quite a few. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Jump into a wormhole. 
want to travel to deep space high, the school is space. But hurry, because lessons are about to begin. All right, that's the end of the lesson for today, but don't forget your homework. A history of robots on Mars. ExoMars Rover certainly isn't the first and won't be the last. Find out as much as you can and submit it online tonight. Class dismissed. Right, let's see what I can find out. I found this website on remarkable robots where you can tap in a question and get an answer from an expert. So, a history of robots, eh? So... What was the first robot sent to Mars? The first orbiter sent to Mars was Mariner 4, which flew past Mars on July 14, 1965, and took the first close-up photographs of another planet. 1965? That's over 50 years ago. So, next question. Which were the first robots to actually land on Mars? The first landers were the Viking landers. Viking 1 landed July 20th, 1976, followed by Viking 2 on September 3rd, 1976. Both landers were accompanied by orbiters that took photos and scientific data from above the planet. So, what robots are currently working on Mars? Currently, Spirit and Opportunity are roving away on the Martian surface. Mars Express and Aurora's Trace Gas Orbiter are orbiting the planet. Mars Express even has the first webcam of another planet available. But you see, I really want to know more about the ExoMars rover which is going to land in 2020. I'm going to ask a question about that. How long will it take to build the first European Mars rover? Work has been underway for four years and will continue right up until launch in 2018. Here's a good question. Do the designers watch science fiction movies to get ideas for the robots? Well, not in general, but a lot of people say the ExoMars rover looks a bit like Wally. Well, Wally was a pretty cool dude if you ask me. Thanks, Remarkable Robots. I'm ready to upload my answer. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkinslive.com slash space. Thank you very much to Professor Pulsar. Always good to have a lesson at Deep Space High. That is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear any more of the series, the podcast, the episodes that you've heard today, catch up wherever you've got this one. You can listen on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com too. Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio or at funkidslive.com. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!